screw the script, we're just going to go live. All right, hello everyone. Welcome to the OSIM Bunker. It is March 22nd, 2021, and we have a heck of a lot to talk about today. Um, I think we're going to start mainly talking about, of course, what has been on everyone's minds, at least in the OSINT sphere, but strangely not in the general media for the past few weeks, but um, NATO-Russia tensions, especially in Ukraine. Um, There's been a lot over the past few weeks, um, frankly, over the last week, um, and and past two weeks, basically. um, A lot of Russian movement um, to the Ukrainian border, a lot of Ukrainian army movement, um, a lot of activity on both sides, and a lot of saber-rattling coming from the top levels from both governments. Um, The Russian government making some incredibly strong statements um, about Russia-NATO relationships, and let's just get into that. Yeah, so obviously a lot, as you say, a lot of saber-rattling, isn't there, at the moment? It's a lot of shows of force and... um... You know, as, as you said, the whole Crimea situation is heating up again um, to the levels which we've seen, you know, not the last two, three years, extremely concerning. Yeah, I think it started um, effectively two weeks ago. Um, we started to see a lot of Ukrainian um, military traffic, um, armored vehicles, uh, armor in general, uh, stuff to support, you know, a fairly complex events of being moved into the border region. Um, I'll throw up some pictures and videos uh, just so you guys can see basically everything that was happening. But um, it's it's definitely a lot of equipment. And it, it sort of brings to question, you know, who escalated first, the Ukrainians by moving more equipment in or, you know, the Russians. Uh, obviously, the Russians um, are are have invaded and taken Ukrainian territory, but um, the Ukrainians seem, at least this spring, fairly uh, encouraged to get that territory back. And I and I know um, a lot of uh, people will say, of course, you know, the Biden statements about Putin, but obviously, you know, I mean, come on, let's be honest, Putin isn't, you know, thin-skinned. It, it's definitely not Biden's statements that caused this to escalate in the first place. I don't, I don't know if you guys want to sort of jump in on that, but I, I just don't think it could possibly have been that that sort of touched this all off. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think, I feel like Putin, as as you just said, at the end of the day, he, he, he is one of the hardest rulers in, in the world. And then that's just not, you know, in terms of just like hard rule as in you know, oppression of people, the, the guy is very very competent he knows what he's doing and i think um he he has taken the initiative to take advantage of of the transitional period that america is currently going through yeah that's a big thing and that that probably also can can you know uh, contributed to the fact that um that the ukrainians moved a, a large number of forces in into that area and um I, I don't know if the Ukrainians think that if they tried to invade the rebel-held regions that the Russians wouldn't respond because, I mean, the Russians have made it fairly obvious that if the Ukrainians did anything, that they would respond and they would back up the rebels. Um, I, I just, I, I don't know why 
the Ukrainians would be at least posturing to make an offensive right now. It's 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 very confusing why they would do that unless they believe that by forcing the situation, basically there are two options: either the Ukrainians are going to try to force a situation where, you know, they invade, the Russians counter, and they try to get NATO involved. That's that's the first thing, and they believe that they can get NATO involved. Um, or the second option is that Russia is the belligerent in this one, and is planning to expand into Ukrainian territory mostly because the current Crimean water situation, as we talked about earlier, um, has caused a lot of pressure on the water supply in Crimea, um, mostly because the, um, the, the canal was dammed off um, when the Russians took Crimea. So there, there is no water supply. And in order to effectively take you know, uh, the water supply um, for Crimea, the Russians would have to push, and I'll put it up on the map here, the Russians would have to push all the way um, into Ukrainian territory. I think it's something like um, uh, uh, about 100 kilometers um, all the way from the border of Crimea to um, the uh, the Odessa River. Um, but I, I just, I, I, it, I keep coming, or the, the Dnieper River, sorry, not the, not the Odessa. Um, but it, it just comes to this question of um, uh, of just who is responsible for the current tensions right now why are they responsible for the current tensions and and what do they intend to do because we can obviously see both sides massing forces on either side of the border it it just it, it's baffling at least yeah definitely and you know for the past couple of weeks all we've seen is is bmps and t62s being shipped to the front on on flatbed uh, on flatbed trains and you know that that if anything that just screams wartime yeah. There was, there was Granted, an the comment by uh, one of the Russian politicians this week on Twitter, which came up in my feed. I don't even know why. Um, where he actually he, he said something along the lines of Southern Ukraine will become a part of Russia, just like Crimea did. Well, yeah, and there are obviously going to be politicians on both sides, both mm. Ukrainian, Russian and from all over NATO that are going to be grandstanding either. They're going to be grandstanding pro-war, anti-war, everything in between. You're going to probably see a couple of politicians, crazy hardliners in Europe call for, you know, full, all out, you know, let's push tanks through the full gap already. Um, so it, there's obviously going to be political pressure um, from both sides. Granted, political pressure in Russia is sort of a different thing, the way that Putin sort of runs the country. Um, and it's sort of, I mean, his popularity after the invasion of Crimea went up. The Russian people liked that. It was a victory. It was low impact. The Russians lost almost no one. Um, and it was incredibly effective. But this, at the same time, the sanctions after um, that invasion absolutely crippled the Russian economy. It 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 was catastrophic. Um which did affect Putin's approval ratings. I don't think there's a situation in which Russia acts as a belligerent where their economy doesn't collapse under sanctions because obviously any and NATO and, you know, of course the US and pretty much all European countries under that sphere would do a similar thing if Russia were to get offensive. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. And um... It, 2014 showed us that it was one of the very few times in recent history where sanctions from the West to the East have, have visibly worked. 
extremely effective. Yeah, and and I guess it's an argument against targeted sanctions. You know, broad-based sanctions against entire markets definitely works better, at least at least from what we saw with Russia, than targeting sanctions against you know regime officials and and government officials. Um, that that was definitely effect we saw out of Russia. Um, and then at the same time, I just we aren't seeing one of the main at least good news i would say is we aren't seeing frontline units being deployed um we're seeing you know t62s being deployed to the front i haven't seen any t72s or any um i mean on the russian side obviously we wouldn't be seeing t90s um but i haven't seen any of the modernized t72 packages um show up on the russian side as well um which indicates that it's not frontline units it's probably still um, the rebel and militia groups that are receiving um, older Russian hardware. Um, and, you know, BMPs, of course, as well. Uh, but there is no indication right now, at, at least for right now, that there are no frontline units near the border or operating inside of um, the uh, seized territories in Ukraine. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, it's all, it's, all, it's all very Syria-like Ukraine, isn't it? It's all very militia, people's militias and yeah. different brigades being supplied by, you know, government. And yeah, it, it's all very faction orientated. Yeah, um, there was some evidence um, at least leaked out um, from Russia's uh, first and um, second uh, army corps based out of uh, Donbass um, or operating in that area that they had been brought into a, a higher state of readiness. But the exercises that we've seen in the area, there was a Russian airborne exercise. Um, I, you could say that's frontline troops, but again, it's airborne. It's not exactly, you know, you, you don't use that for long offensives. You use airborne more as a um, as a tool. So there's there's no real, as it stands right now, and, and of course I'm probably going to end up eating my words in about two weeks, there are no significant numbers of frontline units that make it look like either side is gearing up for a full-scale offensive. Yeah, and you know, I think at the end of the day, we would know if they were. We would, we would be seeing you know, Armenia, Azerbaijan kind of footage from the build-up of just hundreds and hundreds of you know, hardware and you know, artillery etc, yeah. etc. You know, we're not seeing that at the moment. Yeah, we did see so a few other things that um, give you some indications. The Russian uh, Navy sortied a number of ships, um, both uh, in the Black Sea, of course, all six subs um, sortied. So that that is an interesting event. These are subs that can launch cruise missiles. Um, mm -hmm. So there, there is that. Um, Although it is worth mentioning that there was a significant NATO uh, task group in the Black Sea. Uh, yes, the they are they doing. Have been part of the reason for the surge in Russian uh, vessels operating in those waters. Yes, the uh, Eisenhower carrier strike group um, transiting through the Mediterranean. The Eisenhower is now at um, uh, Suda Bay in um, Greece, uh, and then elements of the carrier strike group, I believe, um, a, uh, a, a cruiser and a, a destroyer crossed through the Bosphorus and are now operating or operated temporarily with the Turkish Navy Navy, and then joined the NATO exercise um, from Romania. Um, 
so so there there are NATO exercises in the region right now. There's one still going on in Estonia, um, and then there is one going on in, um, or the one in Estonia may have ended, but the one in Romania is still ongoing. Um, and then, of course, you have the Eisenhower parked in the eastern Mediterranean, which is not far from the region. Um, so that that definitely is uh, something to look at, at least um, as as a as a development. And then um, from the diplomatic side of things, uh, relations have absolutely collapsed. Um, to be honest, from from a friendly perspective, um, anything any air of more agreeability under the Trump administration is is gone. Um, the Russian foreign ministry said there was a complete breakdown of military contacts between NATO and Russia. Um, they they basically said no matter anything but the meeting of ambassadors is just not working. Um, the Russian ambassador was recalled. Um, the Russian ambassador to the U.S. Um, he is currently back in Russia. Um, so it. There, there is that lack of communication between the Biden administration and um, and uh, Russia, um, and then the Russian foreign minister um, stating fairly uh, strongly um, that that tensions, um, that relations um, had reached a low point, and that um, basically uh, uh, ties between the two countries were nearly dead. Um, and then uh, the EU chief um, said that relations had reached a low point um, as well. Basically, it's just a bunch of different political figures from both sides on, on the diplomatic side of things saying that things are not looking good. Um, I, I really haven't seen something this bad since 2014. I, I don't know if you guys sort of have have seen anything this bad before. No, and I, I know what you mean. You mentioned Romania um, a couple of minutes back, and we saw uh, we saw yesterday, in fact, that you know, uh, Britain has been moving um, specialists uh, into Romania and across um, into Kiev um, using BA, uh, the BAE 146, uh, which is a sign that there are certainly things going on behind the scenes. Yeah, that was definitely um, an indication, especially since right now, those specialists were supposed to be there working with um, NATO in an exercise. And so now the fact that they're in Ukraine definitely indicates that um, they may intend to work with the Ukrainian military, um, at least in advisory capability. So we'll sort of see how that evolves. Basically, anything that happens between Ukraine and Russia, even though it doesn't involve NATO will instantly involve NATO um, or or at least very quickly involve NATO just due um, to the nature of the area. And the, uh, the question is that if, if this should escalate, you know, more, um, the question is how far is NATO willing to go in terms of, you know, support for Ukraine? I mean, what's the, what's the extent in which we will see NATO back Ukraine against, against uh, a Russian provocation? Yeah, what if Russia decides to, you know, retake um, the Crimean Canal? What what if they push, you know, all the way up to Dnieper River? Will NATO intervene then? Will will NATO uh, set a red line in the region? Will will they stop, you know, will they stop Russian forces? And and of course, any any intervention will escalate. And you sort of have to look at this. If the Russians only intend to go, you know, capture 
50 or so miles of territory. Will NATO intervene? What will they do? Like, it's just, it's that, it's that incremental escalation that I don't think NATO wants to get involved in because it has the habit of absolutely spiraling out of control. Mm. Um, and, you know, where, where does it go to? I think, particularly at the moment, NATO will look to the US for leadership when it comes to any sort of Russian involvement further into Ukraine. And I think at the moment, what, with what we've seen so far of the, of the Biden administration, it is very unlikely that there will be any US leadership. Um, you know, some of us will remember back in 2011 um, with everything that went on in Libya, um, the US very much took a back seat on that. And it ended up being the UK that led the intervention there um, on behalf of NATO, with the US playing more of a supporting role. Um, and given that you know that that was at a time when Biden was at the vice president of the US, um, I very much doubt that you know we will see much different uh, if an intervention for Ukraine ends up becoming necessary. But at the at the end of the day, what we've seen with the entire situation in Ukraine in the last few years is that generally speaking NATO has sort of said a lot but not done an awful lot and they've sort of stepped back a great deal and just left Russia to do what it was doing. Um, yeah, so granted I think there was the idea at least in NATO that as long as there was no more territory being captured that NATO would not have to do anything offensive, at least, just because it risked escalation. And I think I think a lot of figures are significantly concerned about, you know, the potential outcome of a war. Mm. Um, you know, there, there really has never been anything like this. Uh, it, it is... It was the worst case scenario in the Cold War. A ground war between NATO and Russia. That was the worst case scenario. Yeah. Um, and and now you're looking at the situation where there is a you know a, a low intensity ground war basically between NATO and Russia, um, and I think there is every effort at least on the NATO side of things not to escalate, um, which primarily is why you're seeing the acts of deterrence right now. Um, of course, NATO exercise in Romania, the U.S. Um, uh, deploying the Eisenhower Carrier Strike Group um, into the region. Um, that, that's definitely a big one. Yeah. And I think NATO also recognises that at the moment, while it's still, the world is still dealing with the aftermaths of obviously COVID, and now we have this, this third wave um, in Europe uh, just starting, I think NATO recognises that realistically, even if uh, Russia does start pushing further into Ukraine from Crimea, there isn't really going to be an awful lot of uh, political will or even just uh, equipment and personnel availability to deal with that. Um, obviously, we've, we've had the UK Defence Review, which we'll touch on later in this uh, podcast, but, um, you know, we're, we're seeing cuts to defence across Europe because ultimately we're having to spend money on dealing with the effects of COVID-19. And so, yes, Russia also has that concern, but Russia's in a far better position in terms of equipment and Ukraine, unfortunately, has been struggling and, and, and is a bit of a soft target, really, for Russia. It is, and, and that's why the Ukrainians are being so aggressive, um, you know, so early. They obviously don't want to be caught in the back foot. And even if um, 
Russia were to, you know, aggressively try to push into Ukraine, as we've seen, Ukraine has moved a lot of armor into the region. And, you know, they are actively doing surveillance flights and they, they know what Russia is doing. I mean, even OSCE, you know, um, personnel can clearly see any movement. And there there has been a lot of movement into the region. Um, and I think the Russians have to balance the fact that as opposed to the offensive in 2014, Crimea was taken incredibly easy with, with almost no, you know, resistance. And sort of the same in the um, in the east of the country in Donetsk and Luhansk. But that was, again, they were using proxies at the time or, you know, not official soldiers, um, which definitely made anything more palatable. This time it would be if there were to be an offensive, the Ukrainians are prepared. It would end up escalating very quickly because, you know, it's not coming as a surprise to NATO or Ukraine. And it, it would very quickly, I don't think even with Russian material support, um, it would it would really be possible for the rebels to really take a large amount of territory, which leaves the only option to be, you know, you have little green men. Um which any involvement would be found out pretty quickly because if any of them get captured, they get interrogated and pretty much immediately it gets revealed. Why do we have a, a whole heaping load of Russians operating against, you know, Ukrainian units? Um, and so it's really hard to play that same game that they did in 2014, which which is a deterrence factor, certainly. Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see that what would happen in the eventuality that Russia did decide, um, and I, I'm talking in terms of 2014 here, this is a bit of hindsight if that, you know, Russia, what would have happened if they had um, directly moved into the Ukrainian mainland? And I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm sat here debating with myself whether we would actually see a, a proper hard NATO response, because the response we saw in 2014, you know, was was peacekeeping deployments from, you know, I think uh, Germany and the United Kingdom and a limited amount of sanctions um, from from a, uh, from a national perspective. Um, you know, it, I think you're right. It, this isn't being covered nearly, you know, close to enough for what, what it should be. This no, is, people people know, should be yelling this from the freaking rooftops right now. The, yeah, the fact, yeah, that, yeah, the, yeah, the, fact that mainstream media isn't covering this right now is just is absolutely shocking i just I, I i don't know what to say it's it's we we literally have a standoff between nato and russia of uh and uh, even diplomats are saying it's it's like the cold war right now and and it's just the deterioration over the past few weeks now i'm not even talking about months or years here this is over a period of weeks going from a mostly stable situation with occasional ceasefire violations to both sides massing heavy armor. It, it's just, it's shocking that, that mainstream media isn't covering this right now. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. It is shocking is doesn't quite cover it. Um, especially since you mentioned earlier that this was the end, this was supposed to be the end game scenario in Europe during um, the last couple of decades. This was the greatest fear. And it's playing out at the moment, slowly but surely, it's escalating and we're hearing nothing on it. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's not that hard. There are plenty of people to talk to as well. There are, there are 
the OSCE investigators who are flying drones over the area. There, you know, there's people in Ukrainian military leadership that will talk very openly to to anyone, and it, it's it's just it's it it's baffling how because this is this is a prepackaged story. I mean, this is this is easy to this is easy to run, and, and just no one is paying attention to it. And I mean, yeah, there's sure there is the element of not panicking people, but like. It's it's almost irresponsible not to look at this as the threat it is. I mean, this is this is an imminent threat between how many nuclear powers? One, two, three, four, right now. It's just it's it's sort of baffling, you know, how much tension there is right now. That's just no, and no one's paying attention to it. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting with the defense review today. I obviously haven't had a chance to read the whole of it yet, but. The one major uh, mention of Russia that I did note in there was almost solely focused on submarines. And don't get me wrong, Russia's submarine fleet is growing and it is getting more capable. And obviously they do have, a, a, a as you mentioned, a, a fairly significant number of submarines based fairly close to Ukraine right now with land attack capabilities thanks to cruise missiles. But it's weird that even in the defence review, which has been delayed by however many months it is now it was supposed to have come out last year we're now in March 2021 um, even after all that time there is no mention as so far as I've seen of Russia's involvement in Ukraine um, very little in the way of mention of Russia's involvement in the rest of Eastern Europe um, and I mean we've, we've, we've got jets currently deployed out there on, on Baltic air policing and all sorts of things and yet it, it, it almost feels as though even the, the government officials aren't recognising the threat that Russia is at the minute and the threat that it is becoming. Um, almost, you know, it, it, it's very, very weird because if we can see it, you know, and yeah, okay, Russia's struggling with funding and all the rest of it and, you know, we, we have this ongoing joke in, uh, in, in the world of Twitter about the fact that Russia comes out with a new aircraft carrier design seemingly every month that doesn't have the funding for any of it anyway. But, you know, maybe maybe someone needs to have a, a serious rethink because Russia is coming back. Yeah, okay, it's not coming back perhaps as strongly or as quickly as China is at the minute. And obviously there's a great deal of attention focused on, on China and, and its growth and its influence, uh, particularly over places like Hong Kong at the minute. Um, but Russia definitely needs a, a second looking at and, and I think a lot of NATO countries perhaps have not recognized that as quickly as they ought to. Yeah, and, and especially as, you know, obviously uh, Russia and Belarus right now, at least Russia is encroaching on Europe. They They intend to, if not absorb Belarus completely, include them very deeply in their, you know, sphere of influence. Um, you know, almost like the Warsaw Pact back during the Cold War. And, and they're trying to do the same with Ukraine. Unfortunately, that backfired because the Ukrainian populace, you know, went through a fairly intense uprising. Um, but now they're they're trying to redo it, but by force, similar to the beginning of the Cold War. Um, and, and so you're just seeing this evolution that we we literally, we saw this before. It happened before. and And the fact that I know short-term statements, um, you know, can be inflammatory and they can cause issues. But seeing things like with the defense review, that is a long-term, you know, statement on the future of the, the UK armed forces. 
and the fact that there there aren't really specific assessments or you know intentions to counter russian activity in the region is certainly you know telling at least um whereas you would normally expect to see at least something of note you know given to to the issue um i mean of course we did see you know uh, uh, a uk um uh, a rivet joint um flying off you know the coast of murmansk um and the russian northern fleet you know observing them as they sortied um but there there's just i i feel like there's sort of this intention of you know politicians at least in europe um to sort of bury their head in the sand on the issue and and try to pretend like it's not happening which again russia and states like that operate well in a vacuum without you know attention being drawn to them and I think it's worth saying as well that the, the EU hasn't really helped matters in that regard. Obviously, the EU has for some time now been pushing towards its own sort of military command structures and everything. But it's notable that um, while nations like the US have continued to sort of hold Russia to account and um, make, make a big deal of you know, Russia's behaviour in Ukraine and elsewhere, the EU has very much kind of just rolled over and sort of... Uh, engaged in a lot more diplomacy and appeasement with Russia um, in much the same way that it's been doing it with Iran in the last couple of months um, and that's you know that, that's concerning at the end of the day these are NATO nations but they are very much sort of focusing more on what the EU Commission is saying rather than what their other non-EU NATO allies are saying yeah I think one of the issues in this at least right now is europe's dependence on russian oil um that that is a major issue of course um and then if it's not russian oil it's oil from the middle east and so you have to get your oil from one of those places mm. so you, you have to at the end of the day someone is getting appeased and i a if there is a conflict with russia i would expect china obviously to take advantage of it and iran if they don't take advantage of it they would be morons um and that that is that is definitely one of the incentives not to escalate at least with the eu and the us is right now the western powers are spread out fairly thin trying to deal with a number of different threats and and you know russia would take a massive amount of attention and resources away from that um which which is a, a contributing reason why they aren't escalating right now uh, additionally, of course, there also is, you know, the risk that the second bullet is fired between NATO forces and Russian forces, you, the risk of nuclear war goes up exponentially. I mean, when we, I remember we, we first thought that was going to be an eventuality back in 2014, when, when we saw little green men you know, cross over the border into, into Crimea, it was, there was a lot of genuine fear that this could could be it this, this could be the first time we see um the weapons being used in mainland europe um yeah obviously I, you know didn't come to that but you know, it's it's still an ever-present threat and unfortunately the way things are going it seems to be growing i think it was relieving at the time that it was little green men and not russian armored columns moving into ukraine yeah, yeah, um, yeah that, that was definitely relieving to a lot of people because at least the russians weren't directly you know at, at least in name 
contributing their own forces to the to the situation. Yeah, I mean, you know, over the last couple of days, what have we? I mean, we've seen quite a bit. Um, we've seen satellite imagery of of Russian positions in, in Donbass. Um, only, uh, I believe today, is it today? Have a look. Um, yeah, so I think rebels actually have lost contract, uh, lost contact. Uh, oh wait, no, apologies. This was last week, I think. Yeah, it was last week. Um, they lost a drone. Um, which is those were those on. were um, independent OSCE observers who are sort of responsible for monitoring the ceasefire situation. One of the main things that they released was um, uh, they they um, basically over the last month they spotted. Um, uh, 102 new tanks in the region. Um, there were four last month and 106 this month. Um, four new surface-to-air missile systems. There were zero um, last month and, and now four this month. And um, uh, there was one uh, howitzer system in the region last month, and now there are 43. So we've seen an exponential increase in, um, in the amount of armor, as we were talking about earlier, on both sides of the border. Um, which, which is certainly concerning, though we'll have to see how that evolves. It, it seems, for right now at least, that the armor is in the hands of rebel groups and not Russian, you know, army assets at least. And it, it seems to be a pattern, this, doesn't it? It seems to be a pattern, you know, which we're seeing across across the world even, you know, troubled regions, you know, Syria, you've got the TFSA, you know, Turkish backed and there. To be honest, they're all there, you know, riding around Idlib and in the, in Turkish armor, unashamedly, unashamedly. And um, it you know it seems to be a common pattern that that governments are just you know surplus surplus armor. They're just sort of handing it off to proxies, and you know they know that they they can do some serious damage with them without actually losing servicemen. And, and, and on that topic of handing off surplus armor to people. Um, we had that news story, uh, I think it was probably two weeks ago now, of a load of former British Army uh, vehicles being donated to Lebanon, um, which at the time just absolutely blew my mind because, you know, Lebanon ex is not exactly the most stable country in the world right now, and it just seemed a very, very strange thing for the British government to decide to do. Um, and there's not an awful lot has been said about that either, really. No, no, I, I, I completely agree with you, but it's, you know, it's an odd decision, to say the least, isn't it? it it's not one that I would consider logical uh, in any way for such an unstable, you know, geopolitical, you know, such a country with such an unstable geopolitical you know, climate around it, it, it. Giving them Land Rovers with such capability is absolutely baffling. And, you know, God forbid they end up in the, in the wrong hands, then... Whoever whoever has them there has a has an increased capability to inflict um, you know casualties. Yeah. Um. Well, at least for right now, one of the main um, issues is that Turkey has a, a an outstanding amount of influence in Lebanon, and um, I, I'm assuming British at least the the British government right now wants to offset that a bit because after the explosion um in uh in Beirut. Um, the Turkish basically went from being fairly involved in Lebanon and fairly friendly to um, Lebanon almost becoming a client state. Um, they're they're incredibly friendly with Turkey now, um, especially after the Turkish help. Um, uh, 
after that explosion. Yeah, and you know, maybe you know, moving on to Lebanon a bit here. I mean, we're looking once again. Lebanon has descended into you know civil unrest, seeing riots almost on a nightly basis, based on uh, based on you know poor living conditions, uh, wages, anger, government. Once again, you know, it's it's being ignored, almost sidelined, a bit like Ukraine, and you know, Lebanon is another place in which we need you know needs to have a close eye on it the region it is you know borders israel syria it, it's in the you know, most volatile climate you know arguably in the world i mean to to be honest though um completely and utterly um lebanon's sort of always been like that i i mean it, it's not really an evolution in the way that anyone has dealt with lebanon the only real thing has been who has lebanon been a client state of yeah, there were client state obviously... of Syria. Now there are client state of Turkey. Standard civil unrest in the country. I yeah, mean, I mean it's really it. It's not exactly a change in status quo, um, at all. Yeah, and obviously you know there's no offense made by that. It's just, it's just um, you know unfortunately it's the way it is, and it seems like something in which is going to be very hard to change. Oh, I, I, absolutely. Um, that's that's a big thing. Um, and I think with that, we can move on from some of the, the grimmer um, things we've talked about to at least something we were excited about seeing, at least, um, the, uh, the the defense review. I, I know you guys wanted to talk about that and, and get more in depth with that. I am not that familiar um, with the UK armed forces, um, just because, you know, obviously I'm American and... Our armed forces, good God, they're so large, you can't be an expert in anything on them. Um, so I'll, I'll just let you guys start start on that. First world problems or what, lads, I'm telling you. Um, yeah, John, so um, do you want to just explain, you know, give a brief overview of what, you know, the integrated review and defence white paper are, mate? Yeah, so obviously today, um, like I said earlier, goodness knows how many months late, but we finally today got the uh, integrated defence review white paper um, basically outlining the future of, of, of Britain's armed forces for the next five to ten years um, and it, it goes without saying that going into today uh, analysts and pretty much everyone were waiting to see just how bad the cuts would be um, there were some things we kind of knew were coming there were some surprises that came um, a few things that might be considered good news, um, and I'll, I'll sort of highlight those as we go through. But um, worth saying before I get into the sort of the list of things, notable things that have popped up, um, a few of the sort of units, both ships and uh, sort of army units that have been uh, announced as being scrapped or disbanded, um, from what we're hearing from uh, various sources folks in those units did not even know um, that they were going to be uh, being removed from service, they didn't even know. Uh, they found out about the end of their unit's uh, service time when we did this afternoon. Um, yeah, like and um, we'll attack that. the review was released. And, yeah, go on. Yeah, sorry mate, we'll, we'll, um, we'll actually go ahead and attach that, I think, in the video because I can, uh, can quickly find it now. Um, the regiment in question is uh, the 2nd Battalion uh, Mercian Regiment, and um, a page uh, 
um, a military-related page on Twitter, was in contact with one of the um, service members from the regiment, and then um, he was questioned on it, and then claimed that he uh, he did not know that the regiment would be uh, disbanded and uh, merged into the uh, 1st Battalion Regiment, which is concerning. I must say that's and, very and concerning. That the lad had to find out who he used. story, unfortunately, from uh, one of the two Royal Navy frigates that is going for the axe. Um, crew members reportedly only found out about their ship's uh, demise while on board and at the same time that everyone else was finding out in the news. Um, yeah, and um, that's shocking. Frankly, that's that's absolutely shocking that um, they should find out that way. That's some. Yeah, that, know, that does appear to be a, a failure in in execution, at least. Um, were they trying to prevent leaks? I I don't think if something like this leaked, that would be that severe. No, and it leaks partic yeah. particularly in the case of the two frigates. It, it's kind of been rumored now for several weeks that we were going to see two frigates. Uh, decommissioned and, and, and in fact we, we kind of already knew the names of the ships uh, a fortnight ago um, but obviously we were waiting at the time for actual confirmation of this and now of course we have that confirmation um, yeah just this this sort of Damocles hanging over you know basically the entire fleet hmm. w without any confirmation before releasing it to the general public that's just that's just very very odd yeah, yeah, so I was just going to point out that um, the two frigates in question, which will be uh, retired early, are the two Type uh, 23 frigates, HMS Monmouth and HMS Montrose. Uh, the latter is currently serving a, uh, a long deployment uh, in the Middle East um, on uh, Operation Freedom Sentinel, which is a result of the uh, Persian Gulf crisis of last year. So uh, when she returns home, I believe she'll eventually be um, sold off, laid up, scrapped, whatever the Ministry of Defence uh, wants to do with her. Yeah, it's a very tragic story in the case of HMS Montrose because um, that is a ship that has really been at the forefront of the UK's global presence in the last 12 to 18 months. Um, I mean, only today, I think it was, we got news again that uh, she's carried out yet another drugs bust in the Middle East and seized another three million pounds worth of uh, drugs from pirates. Um, she's been one of three or four vessels involved in somewhere in the region of 350 million pounds worth of drug seizures across the Caribbean and the Middle East in the last six months alone. Um, so no doubt her crew will be in a state of shock this evening. Um, Yes, okay, she's one of the older vessels in the class at this point, and so her retirement probably wouldn't have been a huge surprise, but at the same time, she's probably one of the more uh, well-known vessels, probably one of the more well-loved, um, and certainly one that's had a great deal more media attention um, than some of the other vessels that are still in the class. Um, so yeah, and, and interestingly, at a time when the US is attempting to add additional frigate-based assets um, just because of their usefulness, especially in, you know, the current um, current climate, at least politically. It seems very interesting that the UK or the Royal Navy would be retiring frigates like that. Mm. Um, so, moving on to the, uh, just a summary of the, the, the sort of main news stories from the integra Integrated Review today. Um, 
we have had finally the announcement for the Type 45 Destroyer replacement. Um, for those of you who remember back when the Type 45 Destroyer program began, it was originally meant to have been a class of 12 destroyers, um, which was later cut to 8 ships and then eventually to 6. Um, the Type 83 Destroyer um, is now in planning um, and we should see details of it um, towards the end of the 2020s, heading into 2030s, um, with the intention that the vessels will start being replaced in the late 2030s. Um, as Tom mentioned earlier, the Mercian Regiment has been informed that it will be disbanded. Um, the Mercian Regiment was actually stood up in 2007 or thereabouts um, when it was basically formed from three previous regiments uh, that were being effectively disbanded. Um, so obviously that regiment being shut down is going to be quite a significant hit, um, but it comes as part of plans to decrease the number of British Army troops to 72,500 by 2025, which it's worth noting will be the smallest number of troops in the British Army since the 1700s. Um, as we've also mentioned already as well, two of the Type 23 frigates in the Royal Navy will be uh, retired in the next 12 months. Um, this will bring the overall fleet of escorts down to 17 ships um, from the current 19, so it will be six Type 45 destroyers and the remaining 11 Type 23 frigates. Um, that will remain the case pretty much until the top, first Type 26 frigate, HMS Glasgow, enters service um, sometime in this decade. Uh, in the Royal Air Force, the uh, cuts have hit quite hard. Um, to say the very least, I yeah. must. Actually, no, I, I, I retract that. I think RAF has been, I think it's been done the, the most harm mm. out of the three services. I mean, obviously, that's, that's completely up for debate, judging from tonight's action. I think, in terms of the wedge tail order being cut from five to three. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the loss of the Hercules fleet, that they've been done quite severely, um, which will um, which will leave pretty big gap in the capability. Yeah. Yeah. As as Tom just mentioned, the um, the planned order for five of the Boeing E seven Wedgetail uh, airborne early warning and control aircraft has been cut to three airframes. Um, this this kind of was expected. It has been hinted at now for a couple of months. Um, it is a pretty shocking decision, though, in all fairness, um, particularly when you bear in mind that that literally means the UK has one for training, one in maintenance, and then one for UK air defence duties. Um, and that's it, pretty much. Um, so any any deployments that we're on that require uh, our support will now have to rely on US or NATO or other allied aircraft um, for support. Um, on top of that, with uh, uh, the, the announcement today, 20 of the RAF's Puma helicopters, 24 uh, of the older Typhoon jets, uh, nine Chinook helicopters, and the entire remaining Hercules fleet, which I believe currently numbers 14 of the J and J30 types, um, will all be retired uh, in the next couple of years. Um, the Pumas are perhaps not quite a surprise. The Typhoons, the older ones particularly, again, not quite as much of a surprise. Um, the loss of nine Chinooks is a little bit of a surprise, but kind of 
um, not a you know drastic. Yeah, thing. judging you know the amount we have in the first place, it's it's not a lot considering. But the Hercules fleet loss, like I say, uh, I believe it's fourteen of the C-130J and J-30 uh, model aircraft at the minute. Um, that is a huge cut to the UK airlift capabilities, bearing in mind that we have a fleet of, I believe it's eight or nine C-17s, um, and then 22 of the A400M Atlases. Um, so the, the, the loss of 14 Hercules airframes pretty much represents a third of the airlift fleet being cut. Um, and there's no talk of whether additional Atlas aircraft will be ordered to replace these uh, Hercules being removed or what exactly the plan is there. Um, but that is going to hurt uh, and you know um, it very much suggests that despite the government saying that the, the defence review is to make Britain more of a global uh, power, you, you can't really be a global power if you're cutting the, the, the very means to project that power to support that yeah power. and it's quite ironic that they say that and then proceed to cut you know leave a massive black hole in uh in our airlift capabilities mm. it, it's you know it's quite oxymoronic really um you know leading global power you know proceeds to only all the three waste and completely slices the uh the hercules fleet it you know it you know obviously we're just talking about the raf yeah they have come out of it the worst but yeah. By no means, you know, what some of what we've seen today by no means is it acceptable for, for such a, a prominent you know, military country, such you know, military capability country such as ourselves. It's it's not what we expect to see. Yeah, and and, and it kind of it, it feels a lot like the, the the kind of decision that was made back in 2010 to retire the Harrier. Um, it feels very much like a cost-based decision only rather than any sort of capability being kept in mind. Um, I, I, I hope that in the coming years we will see something done to rectify uh, the loss of the Hercules and, and indeed the reduction in wedge tail orders. Um, but it, it's, you know, like, like I say, it is concerning, it is very tragic. Um, and unfortunately, it, it, that, that's not it. Um, We've obviously got as well, the UK has confirmed that 48 F-35Bs are on order um, and that the, the wording of, of the integrated review suggests that additional aircraft will be ordered. Um, it's not specified exactly how many more. Worth remembering of course that the original order the UK committed to was 138 airframes um, and we already know that we're not going to get anywhere near that number. Um, <laughs> To be quite honest, I think when that was announced, I mean, absolutely nobody in Britain believed in the first place we'd be getting that mm. absolute pipe dream. Um, yeah. It was merely just an ambitious target, and I, you know, if we got anywhere close to that number, then we should have been good. I think, yeah, you know, that's what we're getting. I saw tonight that um, uh, I can't remember, you know, the journalist's name. However, an informed source within. Ministry of Defence had said that uh, the order will consist eventually of around 64 airframes. So, you know, positive news mm. on that front. But an initial order of 48 um, will just about give us the capability to run a carrier strike group. And I mean just about by the skin of our teeth. Yeah. Hey, that's the United that's... States' job. Over-promising and, and, you know, 
promising to deliver under budget. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, this this is barely just being able to sail a carry strike group in terms of, you know, aircraft on maintenance, aircraft on training, mm. um, you know, and taking any, you know, those aircraft out of the equation, you are left with very slim majority of uh, not aircraft available for active service. You know, th this just, it keeps coming back to the fact that there are no catapults. Just like, you can you can literally track back every single issue. Well, in, in fairness, this isn't exactly the first time we've seen this happen to a fast jet order. Um, originally with the Typhoon, uh, the RF was to have received 232 airframes. Um, eventually that was cut all the way back to 160. Um, and now obviously we're getting rid of 24 of those. Um, and a couple have obviously been lost to flying accidents over the years. So it, it, it's... Yeah, I mean, it, it's not a surprise, as Tom said, that, that we're seeing this cut. Um, other cuts that the RAF's facing are uh, all 76 of the BAE Systems Hawk T Mark I jets um, are to be retired. Uh, this figure includes the jets operated by the infamous Royal Air Force Red Arrows aerobatic display team. Um, exactly what that means for the Red Arrows moving forward, I don't know at the moment, because... Um, obviously, there are only 28 uh, T Mark II jets. They're all used at RAF Valley for fast jet training. Um, and I very much doubt that the RAF is going to be prepared to pull 10 of those 28 jets out for use by the Red Arrows. So we may well be seeing the Red Arrows taking on uh, a new type of aircraft in the next couple of years. Um, but yeah, all 76 Hawk T Mark I jets are to be retired as well. Um, the Red Arrows itself, while we're on that subject, um, they are to remain in existence, for the time being at least. Um, there seems to have been some sort of issue um, in terms of how they are going to remain funded. Um, and uh, it, it's worth saying at this point that from what we understand, uh, BAE Systems, Rolls-Royce, Land Rover and a couple of other companies have chipped in somewhere in the region of £1 million towards keeping the Red Arrows operational. Um, so so how far are we from each Red Arrow looking like an F1 car? <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I don't know. It's the, the fact that we've gotten to the point where the Red Arrows are having to be funded by, um, you know, a non-government organization of any description um, is concerning. Yeah. Um, In fairness, the... Uh, it, the the Blue Hornets are funded heavily by Boeing. Hmm. But um, so obviously, over in the US, you have several different aerobatic display teams, whereas for the UK, the Red Arrows is kind of pretty much our only major. It, it's one. our centerpiece, isn't yeah. it? It's our forefront of you know what people see of defence. It's and what it, yeah. you think of. And it yeah, comes, it granted, if if you are in the market for a used Hawk T1, there there are about to be a bunch in the supply chain, so maybe maybe keep a lookout for those. Yeah, and it, it comes back again to this whole thing of the politicians saying, oh, this this will be, you know, the global Britain, um, and emphasising soft power. And, and, and the Red Arrows is, is pretty much Britain's primary example of soft power in terms of military assets. Um, it, it, you know, it goes without saying the Red Arrows are infamous around the world. Um, they are highly in demand and for them to be, you know, even 
at risk of being cut when the government is saying, oh yeah, this is this is the budget for a global Britain. It just, it, it's baffling, absolutely baffling. Um, and I seriously hope that the Red Arrows starts getting the funding it needs to stay uh, operational because I, I highly suspect that if the Red Arrows do face the axe at any point in the coming years, it is going to cause a huge outcry, not just in the UK, but elsewhere. Um, I mean that's that's where it you know that's where the public, I mean, the Red Arrows their popularity you know if anything were to happen to them as funding was unavailable and therefore the operation would have to be closed, there would be in the UK I can safely say there would be a significant in terms of people who don't want to see it go. Mm. Um, there there's a slim like my uh, minority in the UK fence community circle who you know after all don't see the benefits the red arrows and you know it's, it's an argument to be had but should anything happen I, i'm not sure the ministry of defense would get away with it i, I really am not I, I think pressure put on them would, would be enough just to be okay fine we're keeping Um, and uh, the cuts to the army, unfortunately, uh, don't end with the nursing regiment. Um, the Challenger main battle tank uh, fleet, uh, which currently stands at 227 vehicles, is to be cut back to 148. Again, this cut was not really a surprise. Um, there were rumours for a while that we might actually see the complete uh, drawdown of the main battle tank fleet. Um, but for the time being at least, the, the, the cut will be um, cut from 227 to 148 vehicles. Um, those 148 vehicles are to be upgraded um, and will become the Challenger 3 variant. Um, I haven't looked into details to exactly what those upgrades would include, but um, suffice to say it will probably be a sigh of relief for a great many of our NATO and, and particularly European NATO allies at this point that we aren't getting rid of our tanks because um, yeah that would just be utterly ridiculous particularly as we've said earlier with with Russia's behavior in Ukraine at the minute um, yeah. And, yeah, last... and actually and you know if I may just say the cuts the Challenger fleet weren't nearly as bad as we were anticipating mm. before the paper was released yeah which um, is you know a relief um, we we thought we would lose around, you know, actually to to an extent more like half to sixty percent of the fleet, and that's not what that's uh, not what has happened, fortunately. So um, we're getting a good amount of upgraded uh, useful should should the European theatre cough be necessary be necessary to operate in, um, you know, think Ukraine. Um, it's going to be a useful capability to have, and I think anyone who you know doesn't really understand the use of you know anyone who thinks tanks are inferior to twenty one, you're very much mistaken. Yeah, and um, finally, the, the the last two items on the list um, again coming back to the navy. Um, one of the Bay class ships uh, has been announced it will undergo a £40 million uh, overhaul to become a littoral strike missions vessel. Um, some of you will remember in the news a couple of months back there was talk of 
a class of two littoral strike vessels being produced uh, for the Royal Navy um, with the intent that they would be forward deployed um, to different parts of the world. Um, sort of as a, as a combination of a, a military aid ship and a special operations deployment vessel. Um, for whatever reason at the moment, an actual cla new class of ship doesn't appear to be in the pipeline and it appears that we're obviously spending money on converting a Bay class vessel uh, for that role at the moment. But at the very least, um, it's good to see that that idea, that concept hasn't completely gone away and that we are doing something about it, although uh, whether a Bay class vessel can currently be spared um, remains to be seen. Obviously, we'll, we'll have to watch what uh, operational uh, requirements are uh, as we move forward. Um, and last but by no means least, again on the naval front, um, the somewhat controversial news that the uh, UK's nuclear warhead stockpile uh, will be increased from uh, 180 to 260 warheads. Um, we don't have much in the way of details on that. There has been some speculation that these will be uh, brand new warheads that will be brought in to replace the current uh, set of warheads. Um, there's also been speculation that it might be that the current warheads undergo a an overhaul of some description um, and are shrunk in size or whatever to, to, to allow for the expansion to 260 warheads. Um, but obviously the, the, the warhead change uh, comes ahead of obviously the, the completion and, and, and indeed construction of additional vessels of the Dreadnought class uh, submarine which will of course carry the UK's nuclear arsenal uh, well into the 2040s, 2050s and beyond. Yeah, and obviously, goes without saying, very contentious issue, um, you know, very existence of nuclear weapons, contentious issue, but I'd you know, be under no illusion the Ministry of Defence would not be doing this they did not think that there was necessary requirement to be doing so. And I think, uh, as, as we've already alluded to earlier, you know, the, on, the ongoing threat from Russia, the rise in the threat from China, particularly as, as we start this pivot now with Carry Strike, Strike Group 21 uh, towards Indo-Pacific, um, and also obviously the, the, the behaviour of North Korea in recent years, and Iran particularly in the last 12 to 24 months, um, with all of those nations having nuclear weapon programmes of their own, it, it, it's not a surprise that, that they've decided that actually maybe we do need more nuclear weapons just to maintain that credible deterrent. Um, In fairness, I, I would say that at least North Korea and Iran, you would never actually nuke them just due to the nature of their nuclear threat. They One, they can't strike at the UK itself, at least currently. Um, and they don't really there isn't really the element of nuclear deterrence really there that they'll, if they have nuclear weapons, they will use them. Israel, on the other hand, has a reason to have a nuclear deterrence against Iran. The UK and the US, not so much. It, it's more right now, Russia, that that's the main issue and China, of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure some people would love to, you know, be done with Iran as an issue, but obvi obviously it, it doesn't work like that. No, no, I completely agree. 
it's something in which you know it will be haunting us for decades to come unfortunately um we missed anything off the i i don't i don't think we did and and on that um cheery note <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah well oh. Yeah, huge, <laughs> huge thanks here, again please. to uh, the guys over at the UK Defence Journal for uh, enabling this podcast um, and for yep, massive, massive thanks to the platform indeed to do that. First ones out with the with a very good summary of the review. Um, honestly, we'll have that link down below. Recommend you read it. They they were the first ones out with it, and it was the most accurate one from what I saw. Yeah, it's it's been great being able to you know have this podcast publicised by them. We, yeah, and obviously with their assistance, um, we've we've definitely been able to do a lot. Um, so we will be back, um, hopefully, uh, two weeks from now. Um, I will be back on the regular um, interweek uh, news summary schedule. Uh, I, I was traveling last weekend, and so that's why you may have missed it. Um, but we hope to see you then. <laughs>